Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward one conversation at a time. So tune in every month with Liz, Mania, Monica, and Katie as we dive into politics, pop culture, and all things related to being Hmong American. Let's get it! Hi, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Not Your Average My. Uh, This past week, while protests continued across the nation, George Floyd's family said their final farewells and Breonna Taylor's family and friends celebrated what would have been her 27th birthday. In the Twin Cities, community members started cleaning up and rebuilding from the damage that was done to businesses and community spaces amidst protests and demonstrations after Mr. Floyd's murder. So we know that emotions are still really high in our communities and we want to have this conversation, continue to have this conversation on how we can address what's been happening in our country. So we're super excited to welcome Dr. Yang Moore. He is an assistant teaching professor at the University of California, Merced. We're excited to welcome him to our podcast to kind of help us unpack some of the anti-Black sentiments that we've seen within our our Hmong community and also really start moving folks forward to a position where we can be in solidarity with the Black community and other communities of color. So Yang, thank you so much for joining us. Super excited to have you. I remember when I started at Berkeley, I was a freshman and you were starting your PhD. So really excited to, you know, to see your success and uh, see you as a professor at, uh, at a UC in California. So before we dive into this conversation, can you share a little bit about yourself, whether that's about your day job or your research background, background or your interests? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let me uh, talk a little bit about myself, uh, Yang Lore. I'm from uh, Sacramento, California. I just finished my first year teaching at UC Merced. Uh, my research interests are in the areas of uh, education, uh, race, uh, poverty. I've uh, written articles and published about you know Hmong American uh, educational experiences, and I'm currently working on a book about how uh, uh, students, high school students who are high achievers apply to college. I'm looking at how does their family's social class situations uh, influence where they apply to college. I teach courses about race, ethnicity, uh, uh, sociology. I'm a professor of sociology. Uh, I've taught uh, an ethnic studies department as well. So uh, I think I'm well, well-versed in uh, some histories about Asian Americans, but also history of race and racism in this country. Uh, so I'm happy to be on the podcast to share my perspective of what's happening. Yes, thank you for for lending us your time um, and you know your your multiple lenses, right? Um, I was especially stoked to see that you know you had continued on your academic journey and gotten your PhD in sociology, um, and I think that that is actually really good timing because um, I actually also just found out that you know two of the officers who were involved in um, George Floyd's murder got uh, degrees in sociology from the mm-hmm. University of Minnesota because I guess mm-hmm. there's um, like a, a police and law enforcement track. And like, so to me, like, I think it's so important that you mm-hmm. like lend your um, sociology lens to our conversation mm-hmm. today. You know, our goals look inward. Um, and, and like Manya said, really kind of try to address the anti-Blackness that, um, you know, our our Hmong uh, family members and community members might have as well as our Southeast Asian community members. Right. And, you know, it's, 
I, I've actually found that it's not just the elders, right? Like it's, it's a lot of people who are like middle age, right. And mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. even some of our peers. Um, so we hope to, uh, really do that by better understanding the history of how, you know, um, black indigenous and people of color struggled for liberation in America and how, you know, our, our Hmong and Southeast Asian communities fit into that. I guess I'm wondering if we can start the conversation by having, um, you give us an, an overview of a little bit of this history. And you know, we know that these uprisings mm-hmm. are a response to a long history of oppression and mm-hmm. disenfranchisement, right, of, of black and brown people in America. And so how do we get here? And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess if we are complicit in these systems, right, like how do we how do we stop that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the U.S. has a very complicated history with trying to live out its ideals. So the Declaration of Independence emphasized that all men are created equal. But at the same time that this document was written, this idea of race also existed. Okay, so while you know, you know, white Americans at that white colonists believed that all men are created equal, they also had this idea that race exists. That some people were not were not fully human. That mm-hmm. they weren't deserving of the rights of the Declaration of Independence. And it, it is this very complicated history of you know how do we realize our ideals when we have these other ideas, these concepts that interfere with that. Mm-hmm. So take, for instance, African-Americans at that time were slave. We had slavery. And the way to justify slavery was through this idea of race, that somehow blacks were not capable, okay? They were not capable of governing themselves. Uh, they were merely properties to be used as what a white colonists thought was necessary. Okay? The same thing happened for indigenous folks, Native Americans, and we subjugated them to uh, discrimination and oppression and genocide because we labeled them as a different uh, group of people. They weren't humans at all. They were savages, barbarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's this very complicated history of the U.S. trying to realize it's ideal, but we also fighting against this idea that some people are fully human. We've de- dehumanized them. So folks of color, indigenous communities you know, blacks in this country have been fighting for full inclusion into American society for the, you know, ever since uh, European colonists settled on this country. Uh, and I think if we don't want to understand this history, it's hard for us to contextualize why black Americans are so outraged by what's been happening, because this is not just a one-time incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for those of us who lack this knowledge, we tend to think of this as this is only the first time I've seen it. Why haven't they tried out these other ways of trying to get justice, of, of you know, let's say, uh, you know, fighting the law? All these things have been tried. And, you know, unfortunately for people who are marginalized, who have little political power, uh, the disruptive power of protest is often the only way to get justice get your issues out there, mobilize people, really force people to confront their racism. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you con- make that connection to our Hmong community when they're like, well, slavery happened in the past that have mm-hmm. been centuries, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of years ago. So mm-hmm. that's not existent any, in mm-hmm. our country anymore. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that mm-hmm. long history of oppression to them so that mm-hmm. they understand the, ramifications of these policies that were put into place, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even with 
even after the Civil Rights Act, we still mm-hmm. saw housing discrimination where mm-hmm. Black families were redlined to certain neighborhoods or they weren't giving given low interest rates to mm-hmm. home loans for home ownership. Mm-hmm. So you see the racial gap in wealth as well. So mm-hmm. how do you make that connection to people now who are like, well, that happened hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's what's happening now. Mm-hmm. So I guess like, you know, I think for me, like, how do we make that connection for mm-hmm. our community so that they understand that there are consequences mm-hmm. of these policies that were put mm-hmm. into place years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Things like this have happened in the past. You know, how does it affect people today? Uh, let's, you know, slavery ended supposedly, you know, supp- slavery ended in the, eight, the 1860s. Uh, but after slavery, we have what's known as Jim Crow segregation. Blacks were no longer property. Mm-hmm. But they were now considered second-class citizens. Uh, they were segregated into communities, into schools, to services that were of second-class status. And these laws made it difficult for Blacks to fully take advantage of opportunities and resources in this country. And it took the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s to ensure that the laws now will allow prosecution of those who are explicitly racist. So that's what the that's what the civil rights did. It did not dismantle racism. Racism has changed into different forms. So it's these different systems of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and nowadays we call this is a system of mass incarceration. Yeah. Nowadays we lock mm-hmm. up huge proportions of African Americans. Yeah. So it's these ongoing systems that oppress African Americans combined with this history of oppression that has led Blacks to become uh, so concentrated in poor areas. Uh, and that's how more Americans encounter uh, African Americans. Uh, and so for more Americans to understand the movement today, we have to, we have to understand this, this whole history of oppression as well as ongoing racism. It's not just about historical condition, but also contemporary conditions in the form of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Blacks today are defined as criminals, as threatening. This is the reason why we have Black Lives Matter. When you know black people are the victims of bullies' brutality, we have no sympathy for them. Mm-hmm. The first thought that comes to mind, even for those of us who study racism, uh, and Liz, you brought up a good point about these are police officers who have studied sociology. Our anti-blackness does not go away just through merely knowledge. We've been socialized. We've been exposed to media over time again and again that tell us black bodies are threatening. Mm-hmm. So I tell my students, even as a professor who studies race, I am not immune from anti-blackness. And until right. we confront that, uh, and until we actively work to confront our bias, you know, they will come in, 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 into uh, effect. Uh, and so I think that's one of the things we need to realize. And I think for more Americans, it's also to recognize the history of Asian American racism in this country. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, yeah. Asian Americans, Chinese Americans were actually the first group <laughs> to be racially targeted with the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act. And then we also have, uh, you know, uh, laws in California that made it made it difficult for other Asians to naturalize or even to buy property. Japanese Americans yeah. were subjected yeah. to laws that made them, you know, immigrants, Japanese immigrants were not able to purchase property, okay, because they were they were uh, ineligible to become citizens. Citizenship it has it's, uh, has such important ramification. If you were a citizen, you weren't able to vote. More more importantly, for uh, Japanese immigrants, you can't own property. 
So that whole history, we also have a National Origins Act that essentially made it difficult for Asian immigrants. You know, while we talk about racism in terms of its impact on on Blacks and Native Americans, a a lot of, you know, the legislation that were passed uh, during that particular period actually targeted Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so once we understand that history, I think more Americans can, uh, you know, contextualize our experiences. The COVID-19 uh, we we hope that that would have shed some light on racism, but unfortunately, <laughs> that has only further uh, anti-blackness sentiment within our community. Yeah, uh, and so I, I think you know I'm in the process of of trying to really start these conversations for us to really contextualize our own experiences within this broader uh, r- perspective regarding power, white supremacy, or anti-blackness. Uh, to really acknowledge these these co- collective trauma that we face, uh, and how do we make sense of it in a way to engage in more productive conversation to enable us to show solidarity to Black Americans who's fighting for rights that will also protect us from these mm-hmm. systems of oppression. I know you brought up this point of, uh, with COVID-19 and how that should have helped Asian Americans be better <laughs> because <laughs> our group has been targeted due to the language that the, you know, that this administration has used um, to describe COVID-19 and looking at social media, man, I saw so many anti-blackness and so many racist comments towards the black community right because for them they're so defensive of the Hmong community where they're like well where where was the black community when when black people were harming um asian americans because they thought that asian americans had a covid or 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 they might be like well we struggle just as much too if black people just listen to the police and they wouldn't be harmed or they wouldn't be, um, you know, they wouldn't die at the hands of the police, right? So how do you respond to that? I think as as a professor, how do you respond mm-hmm. to these sentiments, right? Because they're so mm-hmm. strong and we know at least one one person in our lives who, ha- who feels that way. Maybe they mm-hmm. understand or they don't about the history, mm-hmm. but they feel that way, right? Because they're like, well, mm-hmm. where was the black community when mm-hmm. we needed them? Or mm-hmm. the other sentiment is like, if they just had listened to the law, then this wouldn't happen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think uh, it's important that we recognize those sentiments, uh, I, as a professor, I, I tend to come from a place of understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've learned over time. You know, when I was young, I was an activist. It was either black, it was black and white. Yeah. If you supported my cause, then you were for equality. If not, then, you know, you were racist or you had internal racism. Uh, but over time, as I've grown older uh, and, you know, I'm still intimately involved with the Hmong community, I've come to a point where I think uh, we need to understand people uh, before judging them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so for me, I've been trying to start this conversation about what is it about Hmong American experiences that lead them to have such sentiment? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Hmong refugees, many of them were placed into predominantly black communities when they first came yes. to this country. Yep. So they had their own trauma you know, <laughs> from living in refugee camps. And then they come to the U.S. and now they are targets of prejudice from other minorities within their, within their, their communities. Uh, Black Americans also have their own collective trauma as well from you know, generations of discrimination, but also uh, the, the anti-Blackness that they face. And so we have, you have these two communities in very poor areas, limited resources, 
without an understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Hmong, people, Hmong and Black tension existed for many decades. And some would argue that those tensions, whether it's with Blacks or whites, led to the formation of Hmong gangs. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you, we have these ongoing Hmong tensions from way back then. Uh, and so I think a lot of, and even today, there's uh, the COVID stuff where what tends to get uh, promoted, what, gets, what, what tends to get shared are these violent instances of, of, of Black uh, against uh, Asian. Uh, and so, you know, I think it reinforces these stereotypes that we already have about Black Americans, that they're violent. Yep. Okay. So it's, I think it's a combination of prejudice based on what the media, what society is telling us, but yeah. also based on our own experiences, uh, our own tensions. Uh, and I think for us is how do we acknowledge that? I think acknowledging those experiences can go a long ways in transforming the way the Hmong Americans think. And what I see is a lot of times, you know, I, I, I totally understand, uh, you know, where, where uh, you know, Hmong activists are coming from because we should be centering the experiences of Black Americans. Black Lives Matter is about understanding understand their experiences. But I think Hmong Americans have felt that they've been neglected. Their experiences aren't mm-hmm. being uh, affirmed. And I think if we can acknowledge those experiences and then help them reframe it in a way that can encourage solidarity, mm-hmm. that these tensions you face are the results of those in power either encouraging such action, the COVID-19, you know, the, the president directly linked the virus to Chinese Americans. And Chinese American stands for all people who look like Chinese. And that includes Hmong people as well. You know, same thing that happens for the tensions that happen in poor communities. Okay. If you face prejudice or, or harassment, those in power need to speak up. Okay. Mm-hmm. They, need, they need to deal with the issue. So at the end of the day, the issues that Hmong face, whether it's with Blacks or with other communities, these are issues that need to be solved by those who have the power to do so. Same thing with the black community as well. This is yeah. an issue of power. And so I think if we can link it to both of you are fighting over issues that can be resolved by those who have power, but they've chosen to neglect those issues. Okay. Uh, and Black Lives Matter is not just about black people. I think that's kind of the one of the key misperceptions is that most people have this, this mainstream view about Black Lives Matter. Okay. Yes. Uh, we, we understand Black Lives Matter in, in the ways that white Americans think about it. White pe- white black mm-hmm. people only matter. This means that, well, uh, black people are not accountable for anything. No, Black Lives Matter is about holding the police accountable for senseless killing. It's not to say that black people can go and do anything. Okay, and most people often interpret it as that. Well, this just means we're going to give black people more right to harass us. No, it's about holding those in power more accountable. And if we hold those in power more accountable to Blacks, it's also going to affect us as well because they're going to be more accountable to us. And, and I think eventually that's the kind of framing, the interpretation that we want our communities to get to. Uh, but they, they have a lot of trauma that, that, that is coming out right now. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, this is not the right time to talk about it because, you know, we need to talk about the experience of Black Americans. But I don't think there, there's no right time no good time to talk about the experiences of Asian Americans because we often get neglected. We're invisible. Yeah. And yeah. and most people don't want to talk about race. But you know, we at a time where they want to talk about race. So let's engage with them. Even though it decenters black Americans, let's engage with that conversation when they're open to it. 
in a way that can get us to get can get them to become in solidarity with the Black Lives Movement. That's so that's so great. I mean, all of that. I mean, I, I guess my my question to you, you know, was going to be like, when can we have these conversations, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think you made a really good point about um, the systems and, you know, whenever we have some of these conversations, right, like, you know, our elders and people will come out and say, well, you know, when I first came to America, like, this is all the suffering that I I had to endure from from black people, right, and all the crimes and stuff that were committed against Mm -hmm. us. And so how do we get people to, you know, think about, um, you know, all of these isolated incidents as part of you know, a, a larger system, right? Like, mm-hmm. and because I, I think, right, like maybe, you know, all, all of us are are educated here, right? Like the three mm-hmm. of us. Um, but, you know, what about people who, you know, say like, I don't have the time to learn about this history and mm-hmm. I don't have the perspective, right? To kind of see, you know, these power dynamics and know that mm-hmm. like I can demand more from, mm-hmm. you know, our, our leaders, right? Like mm-hmm. how do we do that, mm-hmm. right? And show people like it's, mm-hmm. it's, like it's the systems we should be mad at and redirect that there. Yeah, and, and this this is a long term. Uh, this is a long term issue, or I would say a long term solution. Uh, mm-hmm. Education has its limitation. Uh, you know, we've have we have college educated Hmong people who ha- are espousing uh, anti blackness. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, if you think about young people like us, the reason that we have this mindset that it's much more broader is to some extent we've been we've been organized by the people and anti-blackness is not going to end through legislation you know legislation can stop those in power from, from abusing that but interpersonal racism is not going to end until we have new experiences to disrupt our current understanding okay or we start organizing a community to shift their paradigm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of activists organize people to empower them. Same thing will, will be will need to be done if we want to get rid of anti-blackness. How do we organize our communities in a way to help them confront anti-blackness? Because no matter how many conversations we have, it might help some people who are on the fence about it, who yes. are trying to make sense of these uh, conflicted, these these conflicted feelings, these contradictory feelings. You know, people are expressing those at this point. Those people on the fence, these conversations can help them to process those emotions, uh, help them to understand why they mm-hmm. feel that way. But for most people, until they have those experiences uh, with other, you know, with other blacks, you know, we, 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 you know, we're privileged in that we've gone to school where we've interacted with blacks who are interested in racial issues. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also privileged that I'm talking about these issues from a perspective where I live in a working class neighborhoods. Where it's you know there, there's blacks, there's Hispanics, but there's not as many blacks. Most of you know a lot of my cousins live in predominantly black communities, okay? mm-hmm. uh, and, and they they have those interactions on a daily basis. So it's hard for them to separate that from larger perspective of how power operates. Right. Uh, and yeah, and so I think for me, I'm trying to understand why they feel that way. Like, what is it different about me? I went through college. I studied. I studied race to get here. I had to go to you know, anti-war protests uh, to even recognize that protests can be fun, peaceful, and empowering. You know, so it took me many years to get here. And so I think we can't expect our community to overnight mm-hmm. become anti-Black mm-hmm. or anti-racist. Okay? Anti-racist is a whole, a whole different conversation 
to fight against the system. Let's just get them to be aware of their, their anti-blackness. So it's a difficult battle and you we have to fight it strategically. Otherwise, our emotional energy is going to be drained. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a time of the pandemic. We have unlimited time. But our emotional energy <laughs> is not unlimited. And so we have to be strategic about who we confront uh, and whether that's the right avenue to confront that anti-blackness. So when do we, when is the right time to center the Hmong American struggles within these conversations about Black Lives Matter too, right? Because, so you mentioned that before, and to me, you know, when you said that, it brought me back and I was like, okay, let me take a step back because I will be like, right now, it's not the right time. Like, you know, right now we need to be in solidarity with our Black siblings because they're hurting and they're in so much pain. And I think for me, like, yes, I, I empathize with our Mom American Southeast Asian mm-hmm. community because, you know, I've lived in these neighborhoods. The people who steal from you are also as poor as you are, right? So you are struggling in just the same. And, you know, when I talk to my parents about that, they still don't understand that. Although my little sister who's 11 understands why Black Lives Matter. So I'm like, mm-hmm. is it the college classes? Is it is it empathy, compassion? Like what, <laughs> like what is it, right? Or is it a combination yeah. of everything? Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, when is the right time to start centering Hmong American experiences as well? Because for me, I'm like, I don't know if this is the right time because we need mm-hmm. to sympathize with our black Mm -hmm. siblings who are hurting so much right now so i'm Mm -hmm. curious to hear your thoughts on that Mm -hmm. before we kind of jump onto something else yeah and i feel like these conversations have been going in the past it's just that it's just that the Hmong community hasn't been receptive because uh you know they don't think it's worth their time Mm -hmm. Uh, the COVID 19 and black lives matter has really brought race to the forefront and I like that we have different opinions. And this is wonderful because, you know, say, for, for instance, Mania, you are not ready for this conversation. You don't feel like this is even a conversation we should be having. Okay. And that's perfectly fine because you are, you know, centering your attention on Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to have different people fighting different battles. Okay. Yeah. You shouldn't be doing this, you know, like facilitating this conversation because it's going to make you probably. Uh, more outraged that such things actually exist. Perhaps mm-hmm. other people can take on these conversations. Okay? So it's not to say that these conversations should not happen. It's just that you know these conversations can happen in their own space, but my energy will be devoted towards eradicating anti-blackness, yeah. uh, becoming anti-racist. Uh, we each cannot be responsible for addressing all these issues in our community based on our own experiences, the location we live in, uh, our understanding of the world, we have di- uh, different priorities. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fine. I think as long as we're each working towards a more understanding society, that is important. These de- these conversations will need to happen. These debates will need to happen. Uh, perhaps I don't want to be involved in it because I don't think it's worth my time. Perfectly fine. <laughs> other, other people can have it on their own terms. And I just hope that it leads to more greater understanding. Yeah, that's so beautiful, Yang. Like, it's, it's such a great perspective, and I really appreciate you bringing that to the conversation. Um, and it also made me, you know, also step back and, and think, yes, like, you know, we at Not Your Average My also are, I think we, we kind of view ourselves as more progressive and activist folks, mm-hmm. but 
we don't have to carry all the weight of our community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, yeah. um, you mm-hmm. know, our motto is, you know, we're moving our, our community one conversation at a time, but mm-hmm. maybe my, yeah, like Yang's right. Like maybe this is a conversation that, that we, we, we that's not that for us. Can't have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? that, and it's, it's also is a good reminder, right. Um, of self-care and just remembering like, you can't do mm-hmm. everything. Right. And mm-hmm. this is why, like, you know, we, we do this as a community, mm-hmm. right. And we can, mm-hmm can step back and let someone else step up. Right. I, I really appreciate that. So thank you for, for kind of putting things in perspective. Yang. Um, we do have to make room for these conversations and we have to, you know, allow for other people to, to make space for that. Right. I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but, um, that's so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's, I mean, these, these are important conversations to have. And, uh, you know, each of us have, like I said, our own, our interests, you know, Conversations that we're interested in. Uh, some people uh, just feel more empowered to have these conversations. I feel, you know, we come from all of us come from a, a place of privilege. Yeah, uh, that we're able to have this conversation to process these thoughts, find people to help us process it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't have that that opportunity, and so what's happening is that we have a lot of our community members processing in a way that only uh, fortifies their anti-blackness, uh, and I think uh, you know. Uh, you know, I have, you know, family members, cousins who, you know, I'm, I'm part of like conversations and, and the, the, these things are ongoing, but I don't think that's my space to intervene. I want them to get, I want to give them their own space as well. And I think sometimes we feel like you have to confront anti-blackness wherever it exists, mm-hmm. but we're not robot. We're humans. We have feelings. Uh, and so we have to be strategic about how and when we confront uh, because some some conversations are not going to change in our mm-hmm. favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how do we focus on those conversations, those minds uh, that are likely to be changed if they are provided more information and new perspective? So sometimes, you know, when Hmong activists and are frustrated with the anti-black sentiments within our community and some people are like maybe we just need to leave them behind and you know the mm-hmm. revolution still needs to continue so mm-hmm. how do you respond to that as well right because that's still dividing mm-hmm. our community mm-hmm. although we yeah. want them to get to this place mm-hmm. of consciousness where they understand black mm-hmm. what black liberation means yeah and i think it comes down to we have limited emotional energy and so we have to decide you know what is worth fighting for what's the end goal here you know, if, if we're trying to stop the police from, mm-hmm. you know, killing senseless human beings, this is an issue of accountability. This is an issue of power. We don't need a consensus. We don't need all Hmong people to be behind us in order to change laws that would hold people accountable, accountable for their actions. Sometimes culture follows legislation. Okay, Very few times do culture actually precedes legislation. People mm-hmm. are their minds are hard to change. So for instance, you know, more Americans come to uh, the U.S. You know, laws impact what we're able to do in this country. Okay. So slowly, more people adapt to it. Their culture, the way of, of, the way of thinking modifies to adapt to this country. Okay. And so do we leave it behind? It depends what our outcome is. You know, if we're trying to get rid of anti-black racism, we can't leave them behind. We have to engage with them. Yeah. But if we're interested in making sure that police are accountable, those in power are accountable to the senseless killing, then we don't need everybody to be on board. Okay. We need to engage in those strategies that will get those in positions of power, whether it's bureaucrats or policymakers, to make these changes, even if it's unpopular. 
Okay, because the strategy will disrupt society to such an extent that those in power feel the need to make changes. Uh, and so, you know, I think it depends on the strategy that you're trying to get at. Mm-hmm. And I think Black Lives Matter at this point, you know, it, it has a lot of Black Lives Matter is not monolithic. Okay, you mm-hmm. know, there's different variations of it, different uh, approaches to it. You know, uh, some might be uh, some approaches are really about, uh, uh, you know, it's really about reforming the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Uh, others are about, you know, holding, uh, you know, making sure that police are accountable, that we have a perhaps a, a outside group to uh, to investigate police killings, uh, and others are really about defunding the police. Okay, mm-hmm. all these are part of the Black Lives Matter platform. It's just that various groups push for uh, you know various issues. It's as complex as monolithic, uh, and so I think we have to recognize what is it that we as Mo activists are most interested in and in supporting the Black Lives Movement. Is it all of these issues, or is it one particular issue that we have in mind? Mm-hmm. That's that fair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. And I mean, I think that's also a really good reminder, right, that the Hmong community is not a monolith, right? And mm-hmm. like Hmong activists aren't either, right? Like I'm in the Hmong for Black Lives group on Facebook and like that's has such a, a spectrum, right, of people and like on different at sta- different stages of where they are mm-hmm. in their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really do think that, um, you know, the, the people that we're, you know, we're trying to, I guess, you know, change hearts and minds of are also at different stages, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There is some sort of like consciousness, right? Like in in the community where like, you know, some people have, um, you know, faced racism from white people, like from the white systems, right? And they Mm -hmm. they have seen, oh, like, you know, you don't have to study sociology to see and know like, White people are in power, right? Like you see them in as as managers, like, you know, as as leaders, right? And so like to me, like there is a small consciousness there that I think um if it, you know, if if you feel like it is your voice, like like Hmong Hmong activists, um, and some of them have activated it, right? Like to mm-hmm. to get people to vote and to do other things. So I think um I guess the challenge here is right, like when you're trying to change hearts and minds, um uh, there isn't like a tangible outcome necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. That like you can mm-hmm. feel, right? Because you mm-hmm. know, like if you're trying to get someone to vote, like you get them to vote on, mm-hmm. on election day and that's it, right? Like mm-hmm. your job is done. Um, yeah. But I guess this is a little more el- elusive because we because mm-hmm. it doesn't happen overnight, like you said, and mm-hmm. there's no clear like end, like ding, like you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think actions are much easier uh, to accomplish than changing people's thoughts and feelings. You know, you can get people to do certain things, come out to rallies because of peer pressure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, right. And so they, they don't have to believe in the cause. It's just that, well, you know, Yang is my friend and, uh, you know, <laughs> I have to show up to his event, even though I don't necessarily agree. But viewpoints are often hard to change because they take uh, numerous experiences to yeah. really unlearn those things we've been socialized. Uh, and most people don't understand that we live in America. Most of our news reflects the views of white corporate America, mm-hmm. corporations. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so we yep. think of this as this is the standard. You know, what, what is natural, what is normal, it reflects the white view. You know? uh, and so until we kind of uh, are critical of how we understand things. And I tell, I tell some of my friends, mm-hmm. you don't have to be in a position of power to have power. Mm-hmm. We have power here. The, the fact that we have this platform here. Moan radio hosts, the OGs have power. Yes. Because my, my parents... My parents interpret Black Lives Matter through those, <laughs> through yep. what that pe- yep. those people were trying to say. So we have power and that we have voice. And so let's recognize that and let's try to elevate others 
you know, you know, to to other diverse voices, uh, because based on our, our own experiences, our understanding of society, we tend to talk about certain issues. You know, at the end of the day, uh, the outcome of this conversation leads to greater understanding and not greater di- divisiveness, because mm-hmm. it's so easy to be divisive, to uh, reinforce, fortify our, our, uh, our differences when we should be trying to understand uh, each other. Uh, and I hope that that's what comes out of it. Even if nothing tangible uh, in a society comes out of it, that we each have learned something that has kind of modified or made us more critical about some belief that we've held in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Yang, you are much more compassionate than I am to, <laughs> <laughs> to people who are are still in their very, very early journey of getting there, right? Like you are so much more compassionate than I am because, you know, I, I've seen how some Hmong peers have been on social media. We've all seen these threats that Hmong men are making to Hmong women who are speaking of for Black Lives Matter or Hmong women who are pro-Black life. So I like, these threats are real. They've been threatened to get killed, get raped. And and I see some Hmong men being really offended by that. They're like, why are these Hmong women calling out these Hmong guys? Like not, not all Hmong guys are like that, right? Um, so I had to remind people that you should be outraged at the harm that, that these Hmong guys are are, are throwing at these mom women, right? Like not that mm-hmm. mom women are calling them out. So mm-hmm. um, I'm just saying you are, a little, <laughs> you're much more compassionate than I am. Because for me, I was like, wow, like, I think it brings me back to the trauma of living and growing up in a patriarchal society, having mm-hmm. to deal with, mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, sexism as well, when we're trying to make this war a better place so that there's no longer police brutality, mm-hmm. that black mm-hmm. lives are treated as equal as a white life, right? So I guess, like, how do you wrap your head around all of these sentiments from Hmong men within our community as well mm-hmm. when they are mm-hmm. being very, when they are explicitly being very sexist to, mm-hmm. to these Hmong women activists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, before I answer that question, if I forget to answer that question, let me know. But I want to kind of adjust your earlier point about uh, I'm being a little bit, uh, more compassionate. And so, but I, I think, you know, we need critical people as well because I'm all about understanding. Mm-hmm. But to what extent do we just say, well, this is not about, we got to call people out, okay? Yeah. And sometimes we got to call people out. And, you know, maybe I need to be pushed to call these people out because, you know, I see myself as a non-confrontational person. Mm-hmm. But in order to further the movement, sometimes maybe I need to be more confrontational about addressing some of these issues head on. You know, so I appreciate that we got to have diverse perspective. Yeah. But, you know, we need to push each other you know, so if I'm pushing to be more compassionate, try to push me to be more critical in how I, uh, how I uh, address some of these issues because mm-hmm. I'm all understanding, understanding. Well, you know, sometimes some things are, you know, violence is violence. Like this is not something to be understood. This is something that we should all denounce. Mm-hmm. Violence against women, we should all denounce. Like there's no point in trying to understand something. Okay, uh, and so I think these are valid uh, conversation and. I hope that you know both perspective. We can push each other, yeah, uh, to help further, uh, you know, whatever uh, social justice agenda we have. That just because I'm I'm advocating for understanding, uh, it doesn't mean that you know this is the only way, uh, or that you know I'm I'm stuck at this point. You know, mm-hmm. we evolve over time. Okay, we face issue where we feel like this is a non-negotiable issue. Okay, you know, if you are arguing about whether uh, George Floyd should have been killed, then 
you know, this is not this is not debatable. Yeah. Okay? I'm not going to debate you on this. I mean, perhaps you can debate whether the protest uh, tactics are going to be effective. But, yeah. you know, killing senseless killing of black Americans is not a debatable issue. And, right. you know, I, I will call right. you out if, if, if that happens. Uh, and so I, I think these are kind of very important things for, you know, for, you know, whether, you know, people who, who wish ever views to kind of push each other uh, beyond the boundaries of, mm-hmm. of comfort. You know, and I think a lot of moments just, uh, you know, this is a reflection of also the greater society as well. Men in our society, black, white, Asian, uh, feel somehow that they're under attack. They feel like uh, their issues aren't being addressed. And that's not a problem because females are addressing their history of oppression. Men need to organize their own space. So men are, you know, are unsatisfied because there's no one to help them process their emotion. Mm-hmm. their thoughts and their feeling. And so and what ends up happening is mm-hmm. we project those to females because it seems like, oh, we're further, under further attack. When it's, so it's oftentimes it's a matter of our, our, our insecurities. When people are talking about things, we feel deeply personal attack mm-hmm. because we think they're talking yeah. about us. So our insecurities can help us project perceived threats that aren't even there. Mm-hmm. People are talking about what they're facing has nothing to do with you but somehow you feel threatened because you have this insecurity that, uh, well, you know, men are under attack. I don't feel comfortable and, and this and that. And so I think men need to have their own conversation. Okay, They need to have their own conversation before they can engage among women. Uh, and this is not a conversation for among women to uh, have among men because most men aren't ready to have the conversation. Yeah. Most men need to address their own trauma. Right. Okay, uh, And that's the reason why we're, we're seeing a lot of these... Uh, hate speeches from Hmong men, violent filled hate speeches uh, directed towards Hmong women because we feel, you know, we see the power that they have. And so some Hmong men feel like, oh, well, it's a direct attack on me. Like they, if they're empowered, then that means I'm disempowered. No, mm-hmm. you can also be empowered if they are empowered. Yeah. And so I think how, right. do we, how do we address our trauma? How do we address our experiences? And also, you know, the fact that we, we can be empowered uh, when others in, in our community are in power, it's not a, 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 a zero-sum game where some, some people get power, other people lose power. No, we're all, we're all benefiting from this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to bring that, that back to kind of what you were saying where, you know, it's, it's misdirecting anger, right? Like, <laughs> um, because maybe they feel disempowered because, well, they have been, right, because of the system. And they're also men of color, right? Like, yeah. they're denouncing the riots yeah. and the violence, but yeah. don't understand that, like, you know, they're inflicting violence on, mm-hmm. on you know, their Hmong sisters, mm-hmm. um, but they, they, they're, they've been disenfranchised by the mm-hmm. system itself, right? Yes. I actually wanted to go back to something that you were saying where, um, you know, you said the way the Hmong people view, um, I think even the way we view ourselves, but the way we view Black Lives Matter, right, is, is very much influenced by, like, white corporate America, right? And, and and the way that like white people write about us, right? And so the New York Times came out with an, art, with an article about the the community and the, especially the Hmong folks who were trying to rebuild, um, you know, definitely put us in as like the the wedge again, right? Like the Hmong business owners who, who lost their business and um, are now trying to rebuild. But, you know, when you said that, it made me think about how, you know, we have to create our own stories and tell our own stories, mm-hmm. our own narratives, right? Because people will, will write about us and talk about us, like no matter, you know, what we do. But I guess, you know, the question is like, how do we, how do we get out there, right? Like, 
um, our story and get it out there accurately, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because I, I, New York Times, you know, the media, right, is very white and it will always write about us. But like, how do we change that narrative as well, right? Mm-hmm. As as we are are having our own conversations internally in our community, can we can we influence how other people view us from the outside? Like, mm-hmm. um, just kind of curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I think that's a, a you know I don't have a, a specific answer to it. So let me just kind of take you know take us back to the Chai Vang incident. You know the the mm-hmm. hunter that shot, uh, you know shot five white hunters. Think about how you know this is the conversation I would have among people. Think about how the media, how the media portrayed that incident. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, it was you know and, and Hmong hunters have had have have had similar experience before, but the media yep. talked about it as yep. this person you know, was not aware of private property. Uh, and so somehow he just got anger that people were calling him out and he just went on a rampage okay? mm-hmm. uh, without understanding, you know, the sort of fear or threat that he uh, had at that time with, you know, a whole bunch of groups coming at him. If it's a white person to be like, oh, he was threatening regardless of whether or not he crossed into their property. Right, you, know, right. you know, he, he you know, this person was peaceful to start off where well, he felt threatened. So he shot those people. But the media covered it differently. The conversation we had in our community was so so different from the media coverage. Okay, mm-hmm. and I would just give that as an example about you know how we need to be critical of whose voice is, is being whose perspective is being covered. Yep. Uh, and you know it's important to distinguish between facts and interpretation. Okay. For instance, a fact could be well, Chiving killed five people. Okay. But everything else is up to interpretation. Why did he do it? Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and and oftentimes white people have a, their own interpretation of it. Well, this person was just uh, ignorant. Uh, you know, he was just like filled with rage. Uh, most people have a different interpretation. Okay, uh, and so I think you know what what's true or not. You know, you know it's it's this is kind of a social perspective because we can debate facts. You know, this is what actually happened. Okay, the, your person died, but things are left up to interpretation. And you know our race influences that. So if you listen, you know, for instance, I listen to sports radio. You know, most of the sports radio hosts are white. Okay, mm-hmm. they yes. rarely talk about race, or if they talk about race. It's just like let's just emphasize unity. But if you listen to the few black radio hosts, it's a totally different conversation. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and so how do we diversify the voices, diversify the different outlets we get our news from? Uh, and you know that 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 is the, the challenge is. Um, being able to have these different outlets and just uh, so happy that we have, you know, your podcast, we have more American experience mm-hmm. and other people out there who are providing diverse perspectives uh, towards the Hmong community. Sometimes they might be in conflict, but at least they're providing mm-hmm. something that's different from the mainstream. Uh, and so I think this is a, a, a good approach in that people feel empowered to, mm-hmm. Uh, share the way they're processing these things because this is the same thing that's happening in the media. You know, writers are processing what's happening based on their understanding. Okay, and so we need to process from our perspective as well and try to come to an understanding of the the issues that are happening today. Yeah, that's I mean, very beautiful. <laughs> you know, I mean, Yang. First of all, you know, always learn something new from you every time I talk to you and. Mm. 
you know, I, I really appreciate you using your privilege and your position within the community to continue to have these really tough conversations because I think that sometimes it's easier to ignore them to, than to have them. So really appreciate you setting the example um, for doing that. And, you know, I did, I did learn that. <laughs> that I do need to be a little bit more patient with people who are at different journeys in terms of recognizing that our liberations are all tied together. For me, like I feel like our end goal is still to make sure that we are creating a just world for mm-hmm. for our generation, future generations, right? So Liz, I'm not sure if you have any other closing uh, talking points, Yang you as well. Yeah, I don't have much to say. I just want to thank you for the opportunity to come on and share my perspective. Uh, just want to emphasize, you know, it's an informed perspective, but at the end of the day, it's still a perspective. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I think what we're trying to get at is be more informed in how we understand uh, the, uh, the the current unfolding events. Uh, and we want to make sure that the perspectives we're getting information from are informed uh, and, and not based on the distortion of, of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so thank you for the, the, the opportunity to do so. Yeah, thank you. Um, I also learned so much. So I, I really appreciate this. And I think my takeaway is just that, you know, there um, there are more conversations to be had. Um, some of those, you know, we, we will have it, not your average my, but, you know, some of those like will have to be had elsewhere. And, you know, we have to step back and let other people, you know, hold those spaces as well. And so mm-hmm. um, thank you for, for mm-hmm. that perspective, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't I, I didn't expect to to learn this. Um, so I appreciate you know you sharing some of these um, nuggets uh, mm-hmm. with us today and um, you know helping us um, move our, our community uh, with with this conversation. Sounds good. So, um, Yang, thank you again for your time. And we look forward to your online conversations and um, series that you'll be starting. So, you know, when, when that starts, please let us know so that we can share that on our website and with all of, okay. all of our listeners as well. So really want to thank you for your time today.